0: Hello and welcome back to another special edition of The McGregor Podcast. Recently on a Wednesday night, as part of our Journey Together ministry, we hosted a Hot Topic night with Pastor Russell Howard leading. The topic, gender identity. And as you can imagine, it was a pretty hot topic. Well, the title of Pastor Russell's teaching that night was Identity Crisis. And before we get to part two, joining me again in the studio is Pastor Russell. Hey, Pastor Russell. Hey, Brother Mark, good to be here, man. All right, so uh, I know you put a lot of time in preparing these Hot Topic courses because they're they're uh, a little bit different than uh, when you preach and prepare to preach. And yeah. so I'm sure it's a little different type of preparation. But what was something you learned in your preparation? Was there anything that stood out as you were putting this uh, material together? The, uh, the hmm, how do I put this? The pervasiveness
1: of it. The, the fact that, you know, uh, one, of the, one of the consequences of doing what we get to do and working where we get to work and, and hanging out with the kind of people that we get to spend a lot of our time hanging out with um, you know, we, we always use the word "sheltered" to describe little kids. I think I'm a sheltered 60 year old in a lot of ways, um, because I don't expose myself to a whole lot of outside media and things like that. So, uh, you know, you you'd like to believe that what we're discussing is some up and coming thing coming over the horizon that we better be on the lookout for. No, 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 no. This is living. This is living in the camp yes, with us, sir. and and this is right here, right now, and that the degree to which that's true actually surprised me quite a bit.
0: Yeah, and I would agree with that and and you know just in I guess maybe within the last several months maybe I've started paying more attention or, or whatever but yeah it is it is everywhere and you know you mentioned last week on the it was either the beginning or the end you know is this just a bunch of uh, Harvard professors sitting in the faculty lounge right, talking about right. this that's probably where it started 10 or 15 20 years ago right but no now it is about as mainstream as it can get and
1: and not only is it mainstream but in just in just a blink um, our, our biblically held positions are not only out of step, but they are, they are viewed as evil. Hmm. Um, and, and I would not be surprised, uh, in, in some settings they're illegal yeah. to hold the position that we hold. And that that's not going to shrink. Uh, we're, we're going to be increasingly, surprise, surprise, as our Savior predicted, we're going to be increasingly marginalized. Yep. Uh, and if friendship with the world is enmity with God,
0: uh, the, the times ahead are going to make that contrast more clear, not less so. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, this part two, um, you laid out really a, a, a biblical framework for folks to see what true identity is and where that identity comes from. Right. Anything to help set this up before we uh, roll into part two? We are who we are, uh, grounded and rooted in in the
1: the mind and will of the living God, which is expressed most purely and clearly in his word, but it's also expressed in, in reality as it is. He is sovereign. And I think several times during the course of both of these, I've, I've used the word ontology. Mm-hmm. And ontology is that branch of, of philosophy that is concerned with the, with, I, I always say the isness of a thing. A thing is what it is. And the uh, departure from ontology is a departure from reality and reality is an expression of God's will. And so the further we go into delusionalism, which is the trajectory we're on, yep. well,
0: I'll have more to say in part two that we're about to listen to. All right. Well, join me now as we listen together to part two of identity crisis
1: having described at least from my little perspective sort of the the context around us and by the way (laughs) evangelical Christianity has never been the majority viewpoint in any human civilization ever So if you find yourself saying, oh my, we as Christians are no longer the majority viewpoint in our culture, we never were. It's just going to be, it has come to be, and is going to be increasingly clear that we're not. Christianity is designed to function very well under that kind of pressure. And I have no doubt that we can remain faithful under that kind of pressure as, well, I think we shall be called to. How can we we build a a biblical framework to understand identity? Because it's not enough for you and I as children of the living God to argue from simple ontology. Not that long ago, an argument from simple ontology would have led to a fairly truthful viewpoint. But we need to to think biblically about this thing of, of identity and who we are. So I want to I break it down into five broad categories. And I, I, I am not going to keep you till breakfast. Five, five broad um, classifications or ideas about identity for you and I to consider. The first is our created identity. Our created identity. Humankind is the image bearer are the image bearers. Things in my created identity are things that are true of me from my created beginning. Psalm 8, among many other scriptures. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the Son of Man that you care for him? How many of you all are or have been down some years of your adult life members of an adult choir in a church? How many choir member feasts? Do, do y'all know that the, at least until recent years, it may still be true that the majesty and glory of your name, that classic choir anthem, was a best-selling piece of church music in at least the 20th century. And the lyricist of of that amazing choir anthem, pardon me if you're not a choir nerd, I just need this moment with them, are, are drawn largely from Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor and have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We are the image bearers. Just as an aside and as a footnote, whole books have been written on, on what does it mean that humankind's, humankind bear, we bear the image of God. What is the image of God in us? How, do, how could that be, be kind of broken down and delineated? I offer this in lieu of writing a book on the matter. I'll, I'll give you a, sh- a short, simple list of characteristics that are true of us because we're the image bearers. Number one, we are capable of true creativity. We make art for art's sake. We make music. We create drama. Creativity is a, a, a reflection and echo of the image of God in us. Immortality. Though you had a beginning, you will have no end. You will exist as you forever. You are the only piece of creation for which that is true. This, the heavens and earth that we're in shall, shall pass away. You won't. Creativity. Creativity. Immortality, and then some capacity for morality. We know the difference between right and wrong. We uh, like to suppress that with our ungodliness. But there is an innate awareness on some level of, oh, you're not supposed to do that. Oh, you are supposed to do that. Within my created identity, when we speak of it in terms of, of, of sort of these from-the-beginning characteristics, I think it's worth noting that, it's, that it, is not, it is not evil to correct flaws in people. I think of, I think of examples like a cleft palate, and there are a myriad others, where, the, where that, that flaw And I don't mean to be unkind in referring to a cleft palate as a fall. Please please forgive me if my terminology is imprecise. And please hear through to my intent. If, if, If we can correct those things, if we understand them to be a result of the fall not of some individual act of sin, far from it, but we live in a fallen world, therefore there are going to be babies born where the palate has failed to close correctly because that's a thing that happens in a fallen world or any one of other analogous difficulties. If we understand those to be a result of the fall and we understand that, that correction is possible without undue risk of life because life The life of an image bearer is a precious thing and is not to be gambled with capriciously, arbitrarily, shallowly. And as long as we understand that all characteristics, (coughs) including flaws, are to be understood to be for God's ultimate glory. And I I offer John chapter nine, verses one through three. Remember that? The man born blind? Jesus in Jerusalem passed by, and as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, his disciples, who like so many, longed for a cleanly predictable cause and effect universe. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus responded, It was not, it is, it was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. No problem with correcting his blindness. In fact, Jesus did exactly that. But all of that undertaken in a context of the glory of God to be shielded, guarded, upheld, understood... but the createdness of man mankind and the image of god is a key if you're going to understand identity you must start there it is the most fundamental truth about every human being you will ever meet is that human being is created in the image of god the other pillar Of the five I'm going to mention, these first two are the most important. Second, my corrupted identity. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, describes the effect on each and all humans of the fall. This is what happened to all of us in Adam when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. And we, as the inheritors of the sin nature that is in us because of Adam, this can be said of us. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, perhaps even the psychological desire to create my own identity out of thin air, building on that which is false, right? And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I am from my beginning, from my beginning, spiritually dead, devilish, disobedient, desirous in a bad way, and doomed. Nice how those all start with D. And that is why basing my identity in my own internal psychological composition is foolish and false. We know from Jeremiah 79, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And yet we're going to live in a culture that says that the, those things which are generated out of your internal life are the most significant and key characteristics of who you are as a person. That is false, it's just false. Anthropology, in addition to being you know, the, the academic study of, 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 of mankind, there's a branch of theology called anthropology. Anthropos being the Greek word for man. Anthropology is the, is the doctrine of man. And if you're going to have a cohesive, biblical anthropology, those two pillars that I've just given you are the pillars upon which rest a biblical view of what a given human is. Get them out of whack, and your relationships with other people will be out of whack. Parents. If you raise your child as the oh-so-special, created, unique, fantastic, spectacular person that they are, and you do not take into account that they are badly broken because of the fall, you will raise a lopsided kiddo. You have noted by now you don't have to teach the little jewels to lie. They come with that built in. You don't have to teach them to covet. You don't have to teach them to dishonor and disobey you. All that's hardwired. On the other hand, if you raise them in the awareness that they are corrupt, but fail to take into account that they are the spectacular bearers of the image of the living God, you'll undervalue them. Creation, corruption. Get that and you know the lion's share of what you need to know about how human beings ought to identify. But there are some other things that are that are sort of nuanced ramifications of that and one spectacular thing for those of us who know Jesus. Third, my adjustable identity. My adjustable identity. God's God's image in us includes creative impulse and creative capacity. One of my very favorite uh, fictional authors, unsurprising if you know me, is uh, is J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm a huge Tolkien fan. Tolkien called his work subcreation. I like that term. Tolkien, uh, probably not. A Christian, but certainly a theist, would not call himself a creator. He reserved that for God. But as he crafted his fictional world, he called himself a sub-creator. I find the term useful. You and I can sub-create personal characteristics with a degree of legitimacy. For example, show of hands, how many of you have a color hair on your head right now that it would not be if you left it alone? I'm kidding. Do not show your hands. In fact, I need you to forget that I asked you to. Whew. By the way, point of trivia, neither I nor my wife do anything with the color of our hair. I had a young adult in our church ask me that after one Sunday morning. Asked me if I colored my hair and their follow-up was just Gail. I don't think they followed up with Gail. I think that was someone else. Nope, we don't. But you can. You can do that. Some of you have, have holes poked in yourself that aren't there unless you poke them. You can, you can decide to become a person who speaks French and make that change to your identity. You can even decide to be a person who lives in a suburb of Paris and speaks French. And you are not violating any biblical principle even as you might be playing with some adjustable characteristics of your identity. Acquires, you can, you can if, you, if you have the, the equipping for it, you can become a pianist or a gifted plumber. You can can modify certain characteristics of your identity without violating any principle from God's word. And even, as I said on, on the screen, even cosmetic changes can be made. I fell off my bike years ago and broke my ring finger. Still can't straighten it completely. But after a great deal of work, I can straighten it almost, and the knuckle eventually shrunk to the point that I can get a wedding band on and off if I, if I choose to do so. A lot of physical therapy and a lot of work to get that finger to behave in what are now, for me, unnatural ways because the natural shape of that finger came to be quite deformed as a result of not only the fall, but also the specific fall as I tumbled off a bicycle. But adjustable identity specifically must exclude, for example, gender ambiguity. 1 first, first Corinthians 11, the first paragraph, I don't have it printed with me. If you, if you were to look up 1 Corinthians 11 in the first entire paragraph in 1 Corinthians 11, I'm not going to read it, I, I see the time. That entire paragraph. The surface subject is hair length in worship, hair length and head coverings. And if you want to look up, when we preach through 1 Corinthians, we dealt with that at some length. The issue in 1 Corinthians 11, in short, and there's a lot going on in that paragraph, but a major takeaway from that paragraph is be the gender you are. Do not present yourself in such a way as to even accidentally cause questions regarding am I, am I talking to a male or a female? But present yourself in such a way that there is no lack of clarity regarding whether you are male or female. So your adjustable identity can't include monkeying with your gender, not legitimately. And I mean gender as defined by people with a brain in their head, not the World Health Organization. And it can't include self-destructive behaviors. I wish to identify as a one-armed person, therefore I shall cut my arm off deliberately because our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. However, number four, we live in a world now where we're expected to play along with what I have called my imaginary identity. This is where we must part ways with the culture. Because this has become normalized to required. When when psychology overrides ontology, that is when my internal thought life is more important in determining what I am than what I am is, all bets are off. And the explicit, make no mistake, here in August of 2022, the explicit cultural norm and goal is that all characteristics are changeable. Don't like your height? Add something, take something off. Don't like your weight? Add something, take something off. More power to you. Don't like your gender? Add something, take something off. Don't like your ethnicity? construct a work of fiction in which you are a different ethnicity, move into it, and insist that everybody move into it with you. This is especially evil. Remember inventors of evil things? This is especially evil when the technology exists to give cosmetic effect to my delusions. Not only can I declare myself to be what I am not, I can add a layer of of surgical mutilation to create the facade that I am something that I am not. This evil is further compounded when others are expected to conform to my identity delusions. My pronouns are, no, I'm sorry, first your pronouns are what they are. You don't get to pick your pronouns. The rules whereby pronouns are assigned gender in this language of ours Those of you who are native English speakers go back quite a while. My. Today it is unacceptable or even punishable to reject someone's imaginary identity. It will become all the more so an aberrant behavior, a despicable behavior, a, an evil behavior as, <laughs> woe to those who call evil good and good evil. It will become an evil behavior increasingly in the days ahead for you to insist that a person is what a person is. How dare you? How dare you? You must be unfit for your office or unusually stupid, to borrow from Hans Christian Andersen. <sighs> but I finish with this. And it's not a short finish, but it won't be an overly long one. Child of God, the thing, the thing we ought leave with and the thing we ought lead with. For those of us who are in Christ, our redeemed identity. For those who are outside of Christ, that which can be also theirs if they but turn from their sin and trust Jesus. Our redeemed identity as a as a follower of Christ, born again into new life with him. Yeah, I start with my created identity and my corrupt identity, but thankfully I don't end with that as a follower of Christ. I don't face eternity where that is all I have because if that's all I have, I am by nature a child of wrath. And eternity will acquaint me with that ultimate expression of God's wrath in a place called hell. But if I come to Jesus... My identity is defined in at least those ways. First, my creation. I am a child of God. I do bear his image. And my creativity and my immortality and my morality have all been touched and affected by the the new creature I have become. A closer realization of what I was created to be that I can anticipate with certainty will one day be ultimately fulfilled when I see Jesus face to face. I also, however, must acknowledge my corruption. We talk a lot around here about church and the mechanics of church because church is such a big part of our shared experience. One of the reasons that God designed the body of Christ on earth to be be overseen, to be shepherded by more than one person is this characteristic of corruption. Nobody on God's earth, including me, wants to be a part of a church where I have the final say in everything that goes on. You have no idea what a nightmare that would be. Most of you don't know how profoundly untrustworthy I can be. May you never learn. Most of you don't know how profoundly stupid some of my ideas are. May you never learn because most of the things that I would pitch in terms of directions for our church, I pitch them to 15 other godly men who love me enough to say, we love you, but you're all wet. We suspect that is a growth area for you. That ultimately is an acknowledgement. And by the way, I get to do that too. I'm one of the 16, not merely the target. Praise God. That, That plurality is an outgrowth of this corruption. Do you see that? And so many husbands and wives. So much of what you pour into the life of your mate if your marriage is flourishing is, is how you graciously, lovingly, patiently, in a picture that reflects the gospel, react to one another's fallenness and corruption. So it is healthy. It's, well, it's really bad for my self-esteem. Yeah, most of us have a surplus of that lying around anyway. <laughs> acknowledge your creation, acknowledge your corruption, but praise God, your response to your creator your response to your creator. I, I love these moments in scripture. I love Isaiah 6, 5. Chapter begins with a vision. Isaiah's in the temple in the year King Uzziah died. And he sees the Lord as he is in a vision in the temple. And at the end of that magnificent description of the Lord as he is, Isaiah's response. And I said, verse 5 of Isaiah 6, and I said, woe is me, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Note for the record, seeing God as he is was not good for Isaiah's self-esteem. Woe is me. Job had a similar experience. Toward the end of the book, Job having engaged in chapter after chapter after chapter of debate with his various friends. Some of that, especially late in the debate, Job starts saying some things regarding his relationship with God that are just, a. Job has painted himself in a corner of self-justification and he starts saying some really self-justifying things, paraphrasing things like, you know, if God showed up, I'd tell him that he's handling me wrong. That's what I'd do. Paraphrasing, but not wrong. Then God does show up. And at the end of God describing himself as he is to Job, Job's response in Job 42 verses five and six is a thing of beauty. When he says to God, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Our response to God as he is is not to strut confidently into his presence. So, yeah, but those are both. Those are both Old Testament. The God of the New Testament is much nicer. God of the Old Testament, as David reminded us, Sunday is the God of the New Testament. His character does not change. Acts 2, 37 as Peter preaches the gospel on Pentecost and calls that crowd to accept their Messiah. Acts 2, 37, and when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? my response to my creator. Jesus said it like this, Matthew 16, parallels in Mark 8 and Luke 9. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him embrace the truest psychological characteristics of his own self-perceived identity. (laughs) It's not what he said, is it? Let him deny himself. To thine own self be true put that on a plaque and mount it above the lake of fire where it belongs. (laughs) Jesus said exactly the opposite. Maybe I want to be an avocado, but I am not an avocado. And in following Christ, I must deny myself the impulse to desire and declare that I am an avocado. Take up his cross and follow me. Further my trust in my Savior. He doesn't leave me a man of unclean lips. He doesn't leave me, my eyes have seen the king and I abhor myself. He doesn't leave me cut to the heart. And he doesn't leave me in a heap of purposeless self-denial. But from that place, he invites me to trust him. Hey, Russell, now that you've figured out that you're a hopelessly broken pile of no big dealness, follow me. Trust me. Have faith in me. Romans 5 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, declared to be righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of the Lord. That hope, remember, the the New Testament's usage of hope is not hope like, wow, I hope it stops raining by the time I have to go to my car. It's, it's, It's confidence in a future as yet unseen reality. And because of that repenting response and because of that faith, I identify as an adopted child of the king, not by right, but by his declaration, by the court from which there can never be any appeal, which court has adjudicated me righteous, which has declared me adopted. The last word has been said. We were in Ephesians 2 a moment ago. Ephesians 2 verses 4 through 10. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved Wow, even getting, getting saved is even bad for your self-esteem because you didn't do it. You have nothing to brag about. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Identify there. This identity crisis we're in as a culture is in many ways, in many ways, a fairly recent spike or dip or whatever it is in our culture's sanity. But again, child of God, the narrow path has never been wide. We have always lived as those who in this world will face tribulation. I don't mean eschatology. We talk about that other times. But I mean, in your day-to-day life, you're going to face trouble, persecution. This is one more arena within which it's going to become more true before it becomes less true, but it's not brand new. Remember, the people around you that are lost need Jesus. If they're thieves, they need Jesus. If they're arsonists, they need Jesus. If they're rapists, they need Jesus. If they're just garden variety liars, they need Jesus if they are gender misidentifying themselves to the world, they need Jesus. The gospel is the answer. For us who know Jesus, live it out in grace and truth. For those who do not know Jesus, we are the ambassadors, and central to the role of ambassador is to bear the message of the King.
0: wrap up this episode, I want to introduce something we're doing a little bit different for our next episode. The night you taught this hot topic, Pastor Russell, we asked those in attendance to submit their questions. And we said at a later date in one of these special podcasts, we would try our best to answer as many of those questions that were submitted that night. So that's exactly what we're going to do on part three of Identity Crisis. So hopefully now that you've listened to part one and part two, you're right ready to hear part three. So thanks for listening to this special McGregor podcast, Identity Crisis, part two.